0: Good day to all of you, my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you have had a good week, and hard to believe today is December the 15th. Time certainly has uh, flown by, and hard to think in 10 days from now, it's going to be Christmas. But I don't want to rush into it. I mean, I still want to enjoy what's left of the uh, holiday season. After all, I think we should be reminded that... um, Many of uh, centuries ago, and even in colonial days, there wasn't such a thing as 25 days of Christmas. I had to be reminded last year uh, when my wife and I were at Williamsburg, uh, Colonial Williamsburg, I should say, at Christmas time um, young George Washington, a man, the man portraying a younger version of George Washington, and a woman portraying a younger version of Martha Washington, both. Um, told the audience, which my wife and I were a part of, that Christmas, the official celebration of Christmas, did not officially begin until uh, Christmas Eve. It was marked by um, a period of 12 uh, days, 12 days of celebration, but 12 days of reflecting on the greater year as a whole, as to what was gained, as to uh, what was lost. And usually, when I think of what was lost, maybe uh, perhaps it was the passing of a loved one, whether it was um, a parent, uh, or a relative, or someone basically in the immediate family. We must be reminded that uh, when our um, not only when our forefathers were alive, but generations that came before our forefathers did, uh, most notably of European societies, that celebrating twelve days of Christmas was a it was a big deal. But at the same time during that 12-day celebration yes people were thankful for what they received but they also had to be uh, reminded not only of what was gained but what was of lost now i'm not saying that we don't do any of that but we should just be reminded of the fact that uh, that at one time there was no such thing as perhaps celebrating 25 days of christmas i think to me you know the fact that at one time uh, people celebrating 12 days of christmas it, it was um, it was an adequate amount of time to celebrate, but people survived and made do with what um, with what was available. Of course, we have to remember centuries ago there was no such thing as Amazon, so you know, whatever people received in the form of a gift, they were very thankful for what they got. Um, my paternal grandmother told me years ago when she was growing up as a child, whatever they got in their stockings, really in a sense was their christmas presents and if they and if she and her siblings received oranges which they often did that was uh something uh representing a sign of good luck so there again you you know we have to be reminded that sometimes even if we don't get the grandest of gifts whatever came in our stockings like for that of my grandparents generation they were very uh thankful to have gotten what was in the stockings because that to them was better than nothing so Again, it's just a, a general reminder that not everybody from centuries uh, past uh, celebrated uh, 25 days of Christmas, and it might be fair to say that even just a little over 100 years ago, yes, I guess people could have celebrated 25 days, but uh, but not at the same uh, level of extravagance as we do in today's modern day time. Well. You know, here we are again uh, discussing uh, Rebels at Sea, privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan. And so far, we are off to a very good start. I've seen um, some very good results. Uh, but then again, I seem to find uh, good results uh, regardless of uh, podcast book topic series that's done. And I'm not saying that um, to brag or flaunt by no means. I'm just very thankful that there are... Uh, people out there like you all my fellow uh, 101 podcast listeners who um appreciate learning about history even if it even if the uh, content at times is um how do i say it i to put it in a nutshell i do have to remind myself and i think we all do that there have been plenty of times throughout history where um an event that took place has not always been the most pleasant and the outcome was not also um a good one, but the biggest um, question or the biggest um, hurdle we have to face when we learn about um, unpleasantries in history is how do we go forward so that those uh, mistakes don't get repeated again, not only in the present day, but for the future. So in this uh, podcast segment, episode 2 Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution, we're going to learn about um, a neighboring uh, colony of Massachusetts that did something really grand and we're also going to learn about a um, a battle. I wouldn't say so much it was a battle. It was really more of a skirmish that was linked to privateering. But it was a skirmish that actually had international implications involving not only just colonial America, but the mother country being uh, England. So those are just some of the few things we will be learning. So let's go ahead and uh, fasten our seatbelts and get the show on the road. Uh, so, here's our lead-off question. Which um, New England colony became the first to establish its own state navy? Okay, so which New England colony do you all think might have been the first to establish its own state navy? The answer is Rhode Island, and yes, Rhode Island uh, borders uh, Massachusetts. So, Rhode Island or rather, I should say, at the time that uh, Rhode Island established its its own navy, being that it was a colony like her other um, 12 sister colonies of uh, British North America, the uh, colony of Rhode Island, just like Massachusetts next door, both colonies had a history of past events where uh, bad fortunes involving Britain's navy left unhealed scars or wounds. So... How, I guess many of you are wondering, okay, given that Massachusetts was the uh, cradle for um, hotbed, it was a hotbed or a cradle for uh, political extremism in terms of um, taking the um, fight to a higher level, Massachusetts really was the the birthplace for that. So how does Rhode Island um, compare to uh, Massachusetts? Well, for one, I learned that Rhode Island had had an infamous history behind the practice of smuggling goods, or let alone just the practice of smuggling. Does anybody know what smuggling is? I'm sure most of you all do know what smuggling is. But for starters, is smuggling a good or a bad thing? It's uh, it's more often than not a bad thing. So smuggling is an illegal activity involving the importation or exportation of goods without paying the proper duties?" Okay, well, to us when we think of duties, it's fair to say, okay, what duties do you need to perform um, before you could go out and have fun today? <laughs> of course, when I think of that, it might be, oh, well, uh, making sure your room is cleaned and uh, making sure that other things are done around your house. But no, when we think of paying the proper duties, how about um, the the appropriate taxes and fees? on items that were, um, on all items that were uh, brought in from overseas, like, you know, having been shipped from England into the uh, various, um, into the colonies, or perhaps exporting goods from, say Virginia to England, for example. So, so yes, uh, smuggling is, the, is an illegal activity that involves the importation or exportation of goods without paying the necessary uh, proper duties, being the taxes and fees. This in turn results in the violation of customs laws. Well, customs laws can mean um, all sorts of things, but one um, violation in terms of customs laws that would come to my mind is that, okay, if you didn't pay the proper uh, duties, then that could also have a, um, an impact on how, on how soon your cargo uh, would get inspected not only just for unloading the cargo off of your ship and onto the um and into uh the markets uh, that are along the um port along the uh, inner harbor of a town because after all you know not only is it just the wharves but there are markets that um, are near these wharves that uh whose uh, shopkeepers will have uh those below him uh bringing the goods out to the uh ports where the ship is um, being loaded um so that for that ship to uh, make its uh, journey you know 3000 miles back to England so it so yes if uh, proper duties like taxes and fees aren't being paid then it will uh delay um cargo from being unloaded it could also delay cargo from being loaded to where it needs to get to its proper destination within um a reasonable time frame. So, inspection of cargoes is a big deal. And we'll l- learn here soon why in fact um it's more of a big deal because with regards to an incident that uh happens uh that will be taking place off um um in the channel or what's called uh, Rhode Island's Narragansett Bay here soon. So, so yes, um Smuggling, believe it or not, folks, was not something that was confined to just uh, pirates like uh, Blackbeard, for example. Smuggling had been an illegal activity that had been uh, going on in the colonies well before the French and Indian War and well before the first shots were fired around the world, or were fired, rather, I should say, at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. So it would be fair to say that Parliament is not happy about the practice of smuggling in the colonies. And Parliament goes to uh, the necessary um, extremes where, the, where Parliament as a legislative body um, takes um, pieces of legislation that are already in, on the books. They were a series of what were called the Navigation Acts that had been enacted by Parliament in the late 17th century. So by the start of the 1770s, it would be fair to say that uh, Parliament either in the uh, post-Seven Years' War era and by the early 1770s, Parliament uh, is going forward and uh, making the necessary modifications behind these uh, navigation acts to where all European goods entering into the colonies must be placed on English ships, okay? So prior to the modifications, not all goods had to necessarily be placed on English ships, and, it, and prior to the modification, folks, not all English goods had to be uh, placed on ships commanded by Englishmen themselves. So this all changes. And by, um, m- and by making these necessary modifications, Parliament is hoping that, okay, now that all European goods are being placed on English ships and commanded by Englishmen, that there's going to be a greater likelihood that um, all goods and cargoes, uh, will be um, will will be met um, to uh, the proper um, accordances of the laws. In other words, we won't see, we will see a greater reduction in the practice of smuggling. So, the goods and the cargoes alone would be transferred from one ship to another, being that of British vessels, resulting in the payment of large duties. In other words, it will be more of a fixed system. So, in other words, By forcing the column the colonists to pay larger duties in terms of taxes and fees, hopefully this would in their eyes will be a deterrence or or a measure of uh, deterrence in preventing uh, further action of smuggling. You know, legislation looks great on paper, but it sure does lose its luster when it affects um, everyday people, especially those whom have already been practicing smuggling for some time It does get mixed results, to say the least. Now, was there an armed ship, ship, rather, folks, pardon me, (laughs) was an armed ship called the Gaspé, some people may say the Gaspé, but I'm going to say the Gaspé, a British or American vessel. She was a British vessel. Why is the Gaspé, why is our talking about the Gaspé rather going to be important? Well, um, we have to find out as a matter of fact we're going to talk about that next but it's going to be one of those events that um that has impacts on both sides not only for the on the british but also for the um for the colonists so we have to go uh, to the spring of 1772 being 2 years after the infamous boston massacre event uh took place which happened on march the 5th of 1770 The Gaspé's uh, commander, who was uh, William Duddingston, he sailed um, the ship into Rhode Island's Narragansett Bay with a simple mission. And what would have been that simple mission, folks? Enforcement. Enforcement, enforcing the customs collection of duties. That is, the taxes and the fees. All necessary taxes and fees to mandatory inspection of all cargoes. In other words, we're not letting anything slip um, slip out of our hands, and if we see anything that's suspicious, we're gonna and we're gonna uh, stop all um, vessels. We're gonna uh, even if it means doing so without without providing the uh, other side with proper consent. You know, it's one thing to um, stop a vessel or halt uh, an enemy enemy or a vessel that could be under. Um, under a subject's domain, but if you don't have a proper um, probable cause or if you don't have what well, we might think of in today today's time as a proper uh, search warrant, then it would be considered um, uh, a violation of what we now know as our Fourth Amendment to the uh, United States Constitution being under the Bill of Rights, uh, freedom of uh, to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. So, anyways, for uh, but for... You know, we still have about 15 years to go, 15, 20 years to go before we um, get into that, before we go down that road. But anyways, for Captain uh, Dunningston, it's very simple. You know, we're not messing around here anymore. We are very serious this time. So for those of you, you, um, the subjects being the colonies, the colonists, don't play around with us anymore because uh, we really do mean it. So yes, it's a very simple mission going into Narragansett Bay. Enforce the customs, uh, that is the collection of duties, the taxes, the fees, to mandatory inspection of all cargoes. Now, I should point out to you all that Captain William Duddingston and his uh, crew aboard the Gaspé actually arrived into Rhode Island a month earlier, being February of 1772. And at that time, he actually does start um, his practice of... Um, where he basically uh, began um, stopping to inspecting all vessels within Rhode Island. So, in other words, he's stopping any vessel that's currently en route, and that also includes inspecting those vessels to see if, in fact, that the cargo aboard there is legit stuff. So, for... um, commander or rather i should say uh, yes lieutenant william duddingston that was his rank pardon me for lieutenant william duddingston come february the 17th of 1772 the first big move takes place the gas bay captured 12 barrels of undeclared rum now does anybody know when what they mean what the term means when it says undeclared Usually when I think of undeclared, I think of like, okay, a student at college who hasn't um, decided on a major, so he or she is undeclared at that time, meaning that they don't know uh, what they're going to be officially majoring in. But uh, in the shipping industry, given that that's my primary job, sometimes I um, come across or I have to, you know, read up on it from time to time, uh, undeclared value or, you know, say declaring your goods. Basically, um, what happened here was that there were 12 barrels of undeclared rum. It's not so much there were 12 barrels of rum, but the reason why it was undeclared was that the physical goods, being the rum itself, did not match the description listed on the outside of the barrel. So, in other words, the outside of the barrel said one thing in terms of item or items that were shipped. Inside that barrel was the exact opposite in terms of commodity. So, because it didn't match up, the rum, including the vessel, being that of the fortune, which uh, supplied all this rum, was taken to Boston. I find it odd that it was taken to Boston of all places, given that Boston has been the, um, what do you call it, it's been the um, hotbed of all this political uh, activism. But it was sent there. So the, um, the rum and the fortune and the vessel the fortune were taken to Boston where the chances of being reclaimed by the colonists would stand a slimmer chance. We do have to keep in mind, folks, that even at the start of the early 1770s, well, yes, uh, cities like New York, they are actively, in, New York is actively involved, but we also have to think about the logistics at the time that we still have uh, soldiers, we still have a presence of soldiers in Boston. But we don't have uh, a large number of soldiers um, anywhere close to being present in New York. So, obviously, the smart decision was to send this um, rum in the vessel to Boston where, in the eyes of uh, Lieutenant Duddingston and his crew, it would stand a slimmer chance of being caught. Well, I could tell you this much, that the people of Rhode Island are not happy. They're just not happy, folks. They're outraged. And they probably do have a right to be outraged. Over, this, over the incident involving the fortune and the undeclared rum, including, it's not so much that, it, that the undeclared rum and the fortune were captured and sent to Boston, but it was a decision that was made by Lieutenant uh, Duddingston. And what was this decision? He decided, he took matters into his own hand, folks, he decided where the trial itself was, was to take place. For the Rhode Islanders, they viewed um, Duddingston's personal decision as a direct violation per the colony's Royal 1663 Charter, which strictly forbid holding trials outside of the Rhode Island colony if the offense itself happened within the colony. You know, if an offense happens, if an offense committed by someone happens within the confines to the colony of Rhode Island, then, the, then the, um, not only were the actions committed by that individual, you know, how do I say it? The crime itself needs to take place within Rhode Island territory. Why send someone to another colony next door, or let alone, even worse, 3,000 miles across the ocean to be tried for something that didn't happen there? It just makes no sense. But I'm beginning to wonder if Rhode Islanders... And even their brethren next door in Massachusetts are going to start seeing this as, um, it, it really to them is now a greater threat to their um, fundamental uh, secure liberties. After all, you know, we do have someone to thank. I've said it before and I could say it again. And uh, we did talk about him from the previous podcast. He'll be mentioned in other podcasts, I'm sure, down the road. But when I when it comes to... Um, Trying someone for a a crime, regardless of the offense, it does need to happen where the uh, offense itself took place based upon the jurisdiction. But in terms of having a fair and proper trial, we have John Adams to thank for that, you know, the right to a fair and speedy trial. Did the Gaspé come into contact with a uh, colonial American uh, packet ship called the Hannah on June the 9th, 1772? So now we're moving uh, four months uh, later into um, the the midway part of uh, 1772. And um, for those of you who want to know what a packet ship is or a packet, you know, whenever I think of the term packet, yes, I think of mail. And when I first learned about uh, ships being packets, Uh, The best example I could give to you all were packet boats that uh, made their way up and down uh, New York's uh, Erie Canal. Uh, Packet ships or packet boats, they were the type of ships that uh, transported uh, domestic mail, uh, passengers um, from point A to point B. So these aren't, you know, big-sized ships. They might be, you know, medium, small to medium-sized vessels but they do play a, an important role in terms of uh, transporting um, not only um, passengers or, you know, people from point A to point B, but deliver, but uh, making sure that uh, domestic mail gets to its uh, proper uh, destination. So, yes, the Gaspé did come into contact with the colonial American uh, packet ship called the Hannah on June the 9th, 1772. So what is significant about this uh, encounter? Well, I could tell you this much. The Hanna, I don't know if the Hanna carries any rum, but that's <laughs> that's besides the point, though. Uh, for starters, Gaspé's um, commander, Lieutenant William Duddingston, led a fierce pursuit of the Hanna. Just like he's probably done with every other ship up until this point, he has led a fierce pursuit and making it clear that um, that. The British simply are not playing around no more. So he he has led a fierce pursuit of the Hannah, as his uh, intent or his mission was to inspect not only the cargo, but to capture anything deemed undeclared. And another way of looking at anything that was undeclared, meaning it was non-valid, non-authentic. It wasn't the real thing. In other words, you may have something on the front of your barrels that provides a good description of the freight, that's inside, but when opening the inside of your barrel, it turns out to be the opposite. So yes, it's not it's not authentic. It's not it's not valid. It's not the real thing. So secondly, um, Thomas Lindsay, who is the commander of the Hannah, had no time for facing questions about his cargo. Well, if I was in his shoes, I wouldn't have any time either. Too, I don't have time to play around. I want to, you know, out outsmart this guy. So, for Thomas Lindsay, yes, he has no time for facing questions about his cargo, and therefore, he is going to sail his ship into the Narragansett Bay, which led into the Providence River's entryway. Now, we should always be reminded that, you know, it's not just oceans that present hazards to uh, ships uh, traveling along the waters. Even rivers themselves have uh, present challenges, So, yes, the Providence River's entryway does have its uh, share of uh, hazards. So, despite the the presence of hazards, Commander Lindsay, in the end, prevailed. How did he prevail? His ship got around what was called Namquid Point. And I had never heard of this term before, and I don't know if many of you all have too, but that's okay. We're going to learn about it here. Namquid Point was home to um, a narrow point you know, narrow is uh, very uh, shallow. Um, it's not. It, it it's not very uh, steep. So it's a very uh, Namquid Point was home to a narrow point of sandy land. Okay, sandy land, folks. Of course, we think of beaches. We think of that open. Um, we think of lots of sand. But of course, that all can change based upon the tides. So. Namquid Point is home to a narrow point of sandy land known as Sand Spit. Sand Spit, that's an interesting term. So for a Sand Spit, that is where one end is attached to land, but the other end is attached to the water and would enter into the sea. So it's fair to say that that for um, Captain... um, Thomas Lindsay or Commander Thomas Lindsay, I should say, it's very fair to say that his vessel or his packet ship, the Hannah, is very, very familiar with uh Namquid Point, has probably made uh multiple um what do you call it? He's made multiple um uh multiple crossings into this river. It turns out, folks, that the Gaspé is not familiar with the sand spit. Yeah? Think about it. What has the Gaspé been familiar with, folks? The Gaspé has been very familiar probably with just the oceans. That's not to say that the Gaspé could have been familiar with some rivers back home in England, but not this river. So the Gaspé has never dealt with a sand spit where one end is attached to land and the other arrives or enters into the water. And could it be when the other end arrives into water, is that all based upon the tides of, of a river? Sure. You know, tides are not confined to just oceans, folks, high and low tides. Even rivers themselves uh, experience of a high and a low tide as well. So the gas Bay is not familiar with the sand spit, and because she's not familiar with it, she goes about grounding in the sand, that's a um that's a big blow right there, and because she has grounded in the sand, more than likely because she you know she probably could have hit um hit a rock, um, but obviously the tide was not in her favor that she grounds to where there's not enough water to pull her out of um, that shallow um, point, and therefore she is um, stranded. Not good, but also a plus for the Hannah. The Hannah will dock in Providence, of course, Providence, Rhode Island, after avoiding the confrontation with the Gaspe, Thomas Lindsay stays on the offensive. He advises a fellow prominent Providence merchantman, merchantman by the name of Mr. John Brown, for whom Brown University is named after, Ivy League school. So, yes, um, Commander Lindsay advises John Brown of his confrontation with the Gaspé. And so John Brown decides to um, do something very, very um, smart in terms of being on the offensive. I mean, Lindsay has already advised, um, mis- uh, had already advised uh, merchantmen, uh, Mr. John Brown, that the Gaspé is currently stuck in a sand spit. <laughs> of course, you have to remember, there are no telephones back then. There's no... Um, emergencies. You know, we can't call up someone and say, hey, our ship is stuck in the sand spit, or it's stuck. We're stranded. We need help. (laughs) They're at their own mercy. So John Brown orders eight longboats, which are large boats launched from a sailing ship. The mission now here uh, seeks to launch an all-out attack on the stranded HMS Gaspe. The attack would be led by a 39-year-old Uh, by the name of Abraham Whipple, who was a captain whom earned the fame, whom earned uh, prominent fame during the Seven Years' War as a privateersman. So, hey, it is fair to say that we even have some privateering going on um, during that infamous uh, French and Indian War. Well, where do you think it could have happened? Well, we do have to be reminded that the French during the Seven Years' War had control of um, not only just the uh, what we know is the modern-day Ohio Valley, uh, Ohio Territory back then, the French would have had control of uh, Lake Erie. And so, you know, privateering is taking place in, uh, along the waters of Lake Erie, more, most likely. So after closing in roughly 60 yards of the Gaspé, okay, so these longboats are now 60 yards from the Gaspé. So the mission is now well underway. A a series of communications occur, both sides. It is fair to say that the majority of the communications are on the side of the Americans, but there has been an exchange of uh, communications on both sides taking place. The one that uh, will really get the most attention is when Abraham Whipple confronts uh, William Duddingston with a warrant, or I should say an arrest warrant. Duddingston failed to comply, which would have been a given. Whipple yelled the following in quotation, Men, spring to your oars! The longboats moved forward towards Gaspé's bow, me being her front end. Many Rhode Islanders climbed, got out out of the longboats, all of them, and climbed the ropes hanging below the ship where they made it to the top displaying muskets and rifles to stones where a fight or a series of fights ensued with Duddingston's men. Joseph Bucklin, who was one of the um, Rhode Islanders um, aboard uh, the long, within, on board uh, one of the longboats, he would be the man whom shot and severely wounded Lieutenant William Duddingston, <laughs> believe it or not, who survived. As for everyone else aboard the Gaspe, they were taken off the ship And days after June 10th, Duddingston was arrested for seizure of colonial cargo from other uh, vessels. So it looks like maybe the Rhode Islanders are going to get some form of uh, justice here uh, before it's all said and done with. Now, uh, prior to 1772, things were much different on uh, the books in terms of um, law books and uh, Uh, per Parliament. It is fair to say that what happened uh, involving the Gaspé was a first of its kind largely in part because given that relations are now deteriorating, they are showing early signs well I don't know if I'd say early signs anymore, they are showing more signs of deterioration between the mother country and her subjects that attacks by British vessels attacks on British vessels by uh, by the colonies, is now going to be seen more of a as being more of a red flag, unlike before. So prior to 1772, any attacks by Britain's subjects on British naval vessels had gone um, unpunished. I think it's fair to say that for every four, or let alone maybe for every nine out of ten vessels that sailed into um, harbors within um, within the within the um, colonies uh, coastlines that nothing went wrong but it is always fair to say that there was always that one time if something did happen and if something had occurred there would have been um resolution either outside of court or resolution in court to where um to where after the matter had been taken care of both sides probably did come to some form of compromise to ensure that um anything similar to what had occurred would would not happen again. but after uh, June 1772 uh, the British Admiralty is no longer uh, taking um, what happened um, to the Gaspe. they're not taking it lightly no more, given that um, one of, it wasn't so much that one of their vessels had been attacked, but that the Gaspe had been uh, destroyed altogether. It was burned. I mean, uh, it was burned um, from head to toe to where it was no longer deemed salvageable. So this is really the bigger first here, folks. It's not so much that Britain's one of Britain's vessels had been attacked. It had been literally um, desecrated, destroyed. So not long after the Gaspé incident uh, occurred, uh, Parliament... Um, takes uh, matters into its own hands by by enacting legislation called the Dockyard Act, which held that anyone deemed suspicious or considered a suspect behind the burning of a British vessel or multiple British vessels, because now Parliament has to believe that if a, if a group of people are, go about burning one vessel, then that same group could, you know, go about burning other British vessels. So, Basically, the Dockyard Act holds that anyone considered suspicious or deemed uh, suspected to burning uh, British vessels must be extradited and tried, not in the colony where the offense committed folks, but in England, even if that offense did not happen in England's uh, jurisdiction, meaning um, in their uh, territory or soil. I mean, so in other words... You could burn an English vessel in Rhode Island now. Now, knowing that the Dockyard Act has been acted, let's say you burn, you participate in, in the overall burning of an English vessel, you won't be tried in Rhode Island. They'll they'll ship you three thousand miles across the ocean where you'll be tried and more than likely die in jail. Now, um, prior to um, getting chosen as a Continental Army commander, had, um, before I uh, get to that question, I'm sure some of you um, are wondering, what happened to the Americans who burned the spade? Did they get charged with anything? Actually, they did. They got charged with treason. Treason, in this case, being um, being disloyal to the crown, taking up arms against the crown. So now uh, moving on to the next question. Uh, Prior to getting chosen as um, Continental Army Commander, had George Washington's military career been comprised entirely on land? It had. Uh, When we think of um, his time spent um, not only in the Seven Years' War, French and Indian War, but his work as a surveyor, given that he surveyed for uh, Lord Fairfax, But it does turn out that even before the Seven Years' War um, broke out, the only experience that Washington would have had along the waters for, say, more than a couple of weeks would have come in the year 1751, just shy of when he turns 20 years old. George Washington traveled to Barbados with his older half-brother Lawrence, whom was looking for... um, more favorable weather conditions given that his um given he was uh current given that he had already been diagnosed with tuberculosis he was looking for uh, a better uh climate that he felt uh would be suited uh towards um providing better um we call it providing better modified care in with the hopes that uh, his tuberculosis would go away within a reasonable time frame Uh, sadly uh, for lawrence washington um He died a year later in 1752. He was only 34 years old. And George Washington, young George, uh, he uh, looked up to his brother. Uh, Washington was only 11 years old when his uh, father died in 1743, so that pretty much meant that Lawrence was pretty much a surrogate dad figure to George. Uh, Lawrence pretty much taught George everything he needed to know in order to um, not only become a— a reputable uh, man, but also uh, one who uh, could make a good impression on people um, within the greater uh, community. And I have no doubts that uh, Lawrence's uh, guidance and tutelage was uh, essential, um, considering seven years after his death, that in the year 1750, 1759, George met um Martha Dandridge Custis who was at that time the wealthiest woman in Virginia she was already a widow uh, her husband Daniel Park Custis had died she had uh, two children and uh, by George marrying uh, Martha his status enhanced all enhanced tremendously not just marrying Martha but the lands the the prop the land properties he inherited through that marriage um, made his status all the more uh, prominent in uh, the greater Virginia society. And in case some of you are wondering how Mount Vernon got its name, um, George Washington didn't name Mount Vernon. uh, Mount Vernon, Uh, his half-brother Lawrence, named the estate Mount Vernon after a a British uh, admiral whom he served under being uh, Sir Edward, Sir General Edward Vernon, whom he had the utmost respect for. So that's how uh, Mount Vernon uh, got its name. But I could tell you this, that the Mount Vernon we know today was not the Mount Vernon that would have been in existence during the 1750s. Uh, uh, George uh, rented out uh, his um, part of, uh, of the estate to uh, Lawrence and his wife when they were alive. But after Lawrence's wife died, that's when George officially inherited Mount Vernon and other nearby uh, property landings uh, along the greater Potomac River. Now, given that Washington owned uh, vast land holdings, now that we're talking about um, land holdings, throughout Virginia's Tidewater and Northern Neck regions, he was dependent upon um, the maritime trade, given that his properties were surrounded not only by the Potomac River, but also various uh, tributaries that came into the uh, Chesapeake Bay. And, of course, the Potomac River is one of many tributaries um, entering into the heart of the Chesapeake Bay. But by the time he is a commander of the Continental Army, his focus lies on engaging the British by land. So it is fair to say that, yes, he does have some experience along the waters, but he really is more concerned about the land, uh, the greater campaign by land. But Over time, this is going to change, and it will change definitely well before 1775 comes to an end. August of 1775, the Massachusetts General Court requested Washington go forward with approving a plan to create a state navy for Massachusetts. Washington declined. He wasn't being ignorant, folks. There was a reason why he declined. He advised the Massachusetts General Court that his army was already short on gunpowder, Okay, if the Army's already short on gunpowder, this to him makes practical sense in that, okay, if the Army is short on gunpowder, then my resources are severely limited to where any f- further funding or additional funding for maritime proposals isn't, isn't going to be able to come through. So in other words, I can't go behind the Army's back and promise something to you all, and okay, I give it to you guys. But yet, the army has nothing to fall back onto. So, in other words, the last thing Washington needs right now, I mean, yes, he's probably dealing with some internal um, strife, but he doesn't need to add to any, he doesn't need to have anything else occur that would add to existing um, internal conflicts. Because I could tell you this much Washington's dealing with one situation after another because, you know, the mission is to if this Continental Army is going to work, it has to be a united front. And that means probably giving up certain things. That means having to forego something for a short period, for a short or long term period of time. But as the conflict in Massachusetts remained deadlocked, meaning that Britain is not left, there, um, there really has not been a clear winner even after um, what took place at Bunker Hill Yes, the British might have won that battle, but it came at a deadly cost. They lost a quarter of their men; uh, nearly 1,100 men were either killed or wounded. But given that the conflict in Massachusetts remains deadlocked, some of Washington's officers urge him to go forward with conducting naval assignments. But instead of, uh, but doing so without having to seek uh, Congress's approval, even Congress folks. Um, yes it may seem like they're unified even congress at this time is um is facing some issues facing issues a variety of issues but then again isn't congress facing issues even today that result in partisanship yes so it is fair to say that even in 1775 there was partisanship may not have been on the same level like it is today but it did exist but, of course, we also have to keep in mind, too, in 1775, we have not officially declared our separation from England. So, even as there has been, it's fair to say that what's going on in Massachusetts is really a regional conflict matter. So, we still have people in Congress who are holding out for um, for some kind of reconciliation. So, anyway, some of Washington's officers urge him to go forward with conducting naval assignments, but doing so without getting Congress's approval, Washington ordered Colonel John Glover's Marblehead schooner, the Hannah, get equipped or designed as an armed vessel under the Continental Army's jurisdiction. So, in other words, we don't have a separate branch just yet, but we have, but we now are getting a uh, ship um, into a place that will be under uh, the Continental Army's jurisdiction with approval from. Um, General washington september 7th of 1775 the hannah officially set sail and washington himself is responsible for inaugurating the american navy in other words getting it getting how do you call it it's it, i don't you know people when it, when people think of the founder of a founder of the american navy often they think of john paul jones but we can say here that Washington did help uh, lay the uh, proper blueprint foundation, especially with getting the Hanna uh, officially on its uh, feet. October of 1775, um, Congress had been informed. Congress got informed by Washington himself of the Hanna. And believe it or not, folks, it met with no opposition. Well, that's a good, that's a, a good piece of news right there. I think at this point Congress might be happy to know that uh, Washington is not only open-minded but willing to experiment with some other um, unique uh, strategies. Now, between October of 1775 and March of 1776, eight more vessels came about. And, during, and from 1775 into uh, most of 1777, Washington's Navy would go about capturing 55 total prizes. Not bad. We may not be the grandest force, but we're not afraid to back down without a fight. In other words, even if um, one of our ships lost, it didn't lose, we could say it didn't lose without any excuses. What other factor, or factors, but in this case even just a factor alone, contributed behind the greater desire for needing a continental army, or a navy, pardon me? Well, there was a Congressional Committee that came up with a report that um, focused on the costs. And we're not just talking one cost, multiple costs. This report surfaced in, around October 30th of 1775. On October 30th, Congress voted unanimously to go forward with buying and launching out four armed vessels. Okay, four doesn't seem like the biggest number, but it's better than none. The Continental Navy expanded uh, greatly after October of 1775, and and after October of 1775, and after October of 1775 began showing uh, better signs of organization, which would also mean perhaps better discipline. Congress approved construction of thirteen frigates. Do any of you know uh, what, a, what what frigates are? Frigates are, that's spelled F-R-I-G-A-T-E-S, frigates are ships built for speed and maneuvering. So these are ships that, whose goal is to get from point A to point B fast. Perhaps even use a little intimidation in, in the sense with regards to speed. But these ships are also designed for scouting. Okay, by scouting, we're, we're looking to see where enemy ships might be lying and where would be the best... Um, place along the waterways to uh, launch a surprise attack based upon how close we can get to them between say a 40 and 60 yard radius range. So we got scouting, escorting, in this event say escorting smaller ships to patrolling. So in other words, patrolling, we need to make sure that the waters we're traveling along are safe within this particular jurisdiction so that we don't run the risk of getting caught off guard and not only losing what we have inside in terms of uh, necessary provisions, but also so that we don't run the risk of getting impressed. So, believe it or not, this, um, what do you call it, this expenditure um, project, folks, this, the rate was totally unheard of for its time. It it exceeded 800,000. That would probably be in the billions in today's time, but the rate, in its uh, final totality came to 866,000, rather, let me take it back here, 860, yes, over um, 800 million, I should say, so 866, 866 some odd dollars, but it wasn't 866 dollars, folks, I could tell you that much, but it was uh, 866,666 dollars and 66 cents, a lot of sixes there, <laughs> Got my number straight, so uh, pardon me there. Five frigates were to be provided with uh, 32 guns each, another five with 28, and three with 24 guns. Congress assigned special committees whom oversaw construction of frigates to establishing the Navy to setting up regulations for all naval operations. Okay, so we, you know, we do need to have some regulations here. I mean, it's one thing to have a Navy, but even the Navy itself needs to know what's appropriate and not appropriate to be doing. So what did the regulations entail? Well, for starters, one regulation limited all naval captures to British vessels of war. Another regulation established pay rates for naval personnel, but did offer rewards per prize capture, where the proceeds between the officers and crews aboard the naval vessels all shared one half per or half amount per the number of enemy warships captured. October of 1776, Congress switched gears. and think about this. This is now three months after we have officially declared our separation or independence from England. So October of 1776, Congress switched gears by enabling or allowing all officers and crews to receive 100% earnings for each British warship and privateer captured, making naval service more relevant. An increase in financial rewards per Congress's um, Perspective meant a greater likelihood of American naval ships attacking British warships heavily armed, and Congress's creation behind this new navy was to be seen as really as a counter-defensive measure against existing British practices of aggression, most notably impressment. Now, come now, let's for, uh, go back to no, to 1775. November 9th of 1775, there is some. Um, news, uh, what we might think of as breaking news for the day, because the the event itself didn't happen on exactly on November 9th, 1775, but news reached America advising that King George had rejected that olive branch petition. I tell you, we sure put a lot of heart and uh, soul into that olive branch petition, and then we also learned that uh, King George the Third, in a, in a, um, Proclamation that we'll talk about here in a moment. Come Oct- on, come August the 23rd of 1775, George III openly admitted that the colonies were in, in quotations, open and avowed rebellion. In other words, they had deliberately taken up arms against the crown by um, by denouncing everything that they saw in their eyes was unfair, and being in an avowed state of rebellion, meaning that. There really was no um, foreseeable end in sight to this rebellion. For King George III, he has no idea what it's going to take to get his subjects under control, but he knows that they are in a state of rebellion, that that, that the state itself has no end, and meaning that it wouldn't even end uh, tomorrow, if, even if something uh, new was put into play. But the proclam- George III issued a proclamation that, um, that uh, entailed the um, open and avowed rebellion um, clause. The proclamation was known as um, for suppressing rebellion and sedition, and what King George III authorized describing his displeasure behind subjects' hostility towards existing laws, that w- which were meant to benefit both sides. In other words, he does not like the fact that the colonists or the colonies have taken matters into their own hands, and um, and basically have become a greater thorn in his side. I mean, it was bad enough that Massachusetts was the only thorn he had to deal with. Now he's got other colonies that are that are that are um, inspired by, say, what Massachusetts has done, and are now um, taking matters into their own hands. The Proclamation. Um, issued also allowed uh, the king's uh, civil and military officers to use excessive measures behind putting down uh, rebellions, including bringing all traitors to court for offenses committed, and that is, you know, bring them to England. Give them a taste of their medicine. Let them see firsthand what it's like to be tried 3,000 miles across the ocean, and let them know what their their ultimate fate's going to be like. They won't be getting, uh, you know, that in, in modern-day times, you get one call when you're in jail. You won't get that. Yeah, you can write a letter, but by the time you write it, you might be dead. It's unfortunate, but that's really what uh, Parliament's now, um, that Parliament and uh, the King's uh, civil and military officers are, um, are going in terms of uh, course direction. Now, it is fair to say that by early 1776, America had made uh, immense progress in her fight along the seas, from state navies, Washington's navy, privateers from individual colonies, all resulting in creativity. Where the mother country, being England, has taken has been taken by complete surprise. So you know, yes, it's it, it'd be one thing to say that yes, um, having an army is what will ultimately help. Um, defeat the mightiest uh, power in the world, but we also have to remember, too, that not all wars are dictated by land. Conflicts and even wars are dictated by water as well, too, and the fact of the matter is that we have um, vessels already out on the waters creating um, havoc for uh, English against English vessels. That says a lot right there, and it will also indicate Perhaps that um, that we could be in for this war, we're in it for this uh, conflict, not just short term but long term. But is it fair to say that maybe Britain isn't giving us the proper respect that maybe we deserve for being on the water? Well, given that she's the mightiest empire in the world, the only people she's looking after are really now from within, being her her own uh, her own people. As for the colonies, <laughs> George the Third's already consider them to be ungrateful subjects well we've covered a lot of ground um, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all and I will be on assignment um, for a couple of days so my uh, the next time I'll be back on the air will be sometime come the start of the uh, coming week hopefully so when I'm on the air next we're going to learn more about a piece of legislation called the prohibitory act we're also going to learn about some uh, individuals who um most notably, a, a fellow by the name of Thomas Paine, who is the author of Common Sense. Uh, we're going uh, to, yes, we're going to uh, continue to learn about some uh, things that I find are unique and relevant, uh, w- worth uh, sharing with all of you, my fellow listeners. So, uh, thank you for your time, as always. Thank you for being such uh, great um, learners uh, to listeners. Uh, you guys do a great job. Without you all, I don't know where I would be. Thank you for your time, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Take care.